Hello, Stuff You Should Know. Come and see us in Orlando or New Orleans, because that's your last chance. Yep, Orlando, we're going to be at the Plaza Live October 9th. New Orleans, we're going to be at the Civic Theater October 10th. Just go to SYSKlive.com and you will find info and links to buy tickets. And then you can come see us because they won't let you in the door without them. I'm sorry. That's right. And if you want to come see me, I will be in Chicago at Lincoln Hall on September 12th. And I will be in Austin, Texas at the North Door on October 2nd. Uh, Ticket links are weirdly hard to find. So just look up End of the World Josh Clark Austin or Chicago and you will find what you're looking for. See you guys soon. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's first-time guest producer Dave. Dave. Yeah. Back with us. He picked it up already that he already knows not to say anything in response. <laughs> I love that for in a guest producer, don't you? So Dave's story, Dave worked with us many, many years ago mm-hmm. and went away. I don't even know what Dave did in the meantime. He went to Alaska, I think. For he wandered the while. desert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then the he desert wandered of back, Alaska. He wandered back in one day and said, hey, I hear you guys invented podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can I get a job? Yeah. And here he is now. Yeah, it's good to have him back. You may have noticed a a distinct uptick in the quality of our short stuffs. That's because Dave took over editing those things. Yeah, Jerry was like, this isn't even worth my time. Snooze, (laughs) yawn. Yeah, Jerry's been handing off duties, huh? (laughs) Left and right, like she's dealing a hand of cards. (laughs) Um, You know, the final straw one day is she's going to... Just look at us both. This is how she's going to quit and do the move when the dealer leaves the table. <laughs> yep. The little hand move. <laughs> yep. I'm out. I'm out. I hate you both so much. I'm that's, out. That's how she's going to break it to us. Yep. And then a new person with a cummerbund on will just wander in. Yeah. And an arm uh, garter. <laughs> right. Because we go to casinos in the 19th century. Right. A portly fellow with a mustache. <laughs> that's right. His hair waxed. That'd be great would be great. Can't you see Jerry dreaming about doing that? Like just kind of twitching in her sleep with a big smile on her face? You and I dream about stuff you should know going on forever, and she dreams about its <laughs> ultimate demise. Right. <laughs> so, Chuck, let me ask you. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had nacho cheese Doritos? Uh, is that the original Dorito? Uh, I don't know. I think it's possible taco flavor is the original. But for you and me as children of the 70s, 80s, I would say nacho cheese is the first one we probably ever ate. The red bag. Sure. I'm a cool ranch guy. I like it too. Actually, I like all Doritos. I don't really discriminate. (laughs) So you have had nacho cheese Doritos. (laughs) Yes. Have you ever had soy sauce? Oh, I'm I'm a big soy guy. Okay. I do not follow the sushi, uh, what they say, how to eat sushi. I Mm -hmm. drown it. Do you? I, I still use soy sauce, even though every time I, <laughs> there's a weird little voice in my head that's like, you're not supposed to do that. That and voice say, is probably Yumi sitting next to you. <laughs> I say, no, it's really not because she uses a little bit too, but I, I don't know what it is. It's not male. It's not female. It's just some weird disembodied voice. And I say, to heck with you voice. I'm doing it anyway. Yeah. Um, what about Magi sauce? Have you ever had that? Ooh, I don't think so. Oh, I'll bet you have somewhere. It's a kind of like a tall, slender brown bottle with a yellow label. Maggi, M-A-G-G-I. 
I think I can picture it. Okay. I'll bet you've had it. Anyway, if you've had all three of those or any one of those, what about Vegemite? <laughs> oh, God, no. Okay. I've had Vegemite. I'm not crazy for it, but I, we're not here to yuck anyone's yum, right? Well, I got, I got, I'm going to throw one in because I see what you're doing now. Okay. Can I throw one in there? Sure. Have you ever used Accent? That is A-C, uh, a little accent agu, I believe. Sure. C-E-N-T, that spice. I don't, I don't know if I have. I know exactly what it is because I'm just so familiar with grocery stores, but I don't know if I've ever had it. <laughs> You're so familiar with grocery stores. So familiar. It's one of your talents. I've got another one for you. You know Japanese mayonnaise, the Kewpie doll mayonnaise? I have had that. Okay. We could do this all day. What about oysters? You ever had oysters? <laughs> I love oysters. Okay. Well, Chuck, listen, you have had MSG, monosodium glutamate, if you've eaten any one or all of those things. That's right. I love monosodium glutamate, also known as MSG, and the world does too. The world just doesn't know it because MSG, those three little words, those three little letters, have <laughs> such a bad reputation, yeah. especially in the West, especially in America, that food manufacturers have come to basically bend over backwards to create new processes for creating MSG so that they can insert them into foods without having to say that there's MSG in the food, even though there's very much MSG in the food, but they know that a lot of Americans won't eat that food if they see that there's MSG in there. That's right, and we will get to this in more detail, but it was such a bad thing at one point, mm -hmm. especially in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Like, I remember growing up and people talking about MSG in Chinese restaurants— <clears throat> and the whole time they were talking smack about Chinese restaurants, a lot of American families were just dumping that stuff all over their food via that little Accent spice bottle. Yeah, Accent, any kind of processed food that has any sort of salty or savory kind of flavor to it, like it's everywhere. It's in grape juice. It appears everywhere, naturally and added. Because grape juice, what you want is a meaty, salty aftertaste. <laughs> right. <laughs> Swishing the grape juice around your mouth, you're like, yeah, it's got a real oystery quality to it. Oh, I God. love it. Are they natural in oysters? Is that the deal? Yeah, oysters, Are clams. They? they MSG. Yeah, I'm calling them a they, like the little trio of... Sure. Those three letters. Yeah. So the, the point is, is that people are terrified of MSG or really can't stand it. They say maybe it, it gives them all sorts of physical maladies. Perhaps they think it can, can lead to developmental disorders. And yet at the same time, they consume M MSG every day without realizing it and without being affected by it. So it's entirely possible. And like you said, we'll talk about this much more in depth later, that the fear of MSG is a totally unfounded scientific panic that is a, a, a basically a nocebo reaction mm -hmm. to something that appears to be basically harmless to almost everybody who consumes it. Yeah, so let's, I mean, we're going to be busting some myths left and right. Yeah, we are. Like, who, uh, I call Adam. <laughs> Did you say I call Adam? Yeah, I call Adam. <laughs> You're Jamie this time. Oh, nuts. Let me get oh, my beret Jamie. out. Yeah. <laughs> You got to shave your beard too. Just keep the mustache. Yeah, yeah, and I got to grow that mustache out to where it covers both lips. That's right. He had that big thing. Boy, he oh, disappeared, man. didn't he? It's enormous. Oh yeah, he said thanks for the memories, suckers. Yeah, my I always had the was under the impression just watching that show and being a fan 
that he didn't want to be there ever. <laughs> right. I think he liked the science of it. He wasn't into the TV part of it. I think so. I think his last day on set, uh, he was he was probably pretty stoked to get he out was, of there. Right. He was like Jerry at the end of Stuff You Should Know when it comes. Yeah, except he had millions of dollars tucked into his <laughs> arm <Right>. garter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah. All right, so monosodium glutamate is, there's a lot of myths. One of them is that, you know, this is something that human beings just created out of thin air. It's black right. magic. Mm-hmm. And that is not true because it occurs naturally in a lot of foods. If you've ever had tomatoes and cheese, yep. yeah, those are a couple of big ones. You eat a pizza, you're eating naturally occurring MSG. Yeah, don't forget again, oysters, anchovies, mushrooms, potatoes. Um, if you like Asian food, Kelp, seaweed, sure. all that stuff contains natural MSG or some form of glutamates. Yeah, and such that the FDA, like, if you get a can of tomato sauce, if you haven't uh, added MSG otherwise, it, right. you don't have to put that on the label because it's in the tomato. Right, but apparently in the United States, you also can't put something like no added MSG or no MSG on the label because it's been proven uh, as misleading. So you just don't mention MSG at all, even though there is MSG in that tomato sauce. But like you said, if the manufacturer says, these tomatoes have a decent amount of MSG, but we really want to pep it up a little bit with some added MSG, then they definitely have to put that MSG is in there. That's right. So if you want to talk chemistry very briefly, mm-hmm. which is always the best way to talk about chemistry, <laughs> uh, it is monosodium uh, glutamate. Is glutamic or glutamic acid? What do you say? Glutamic. Glutamic. Yeah. And a little ion of sodium just boop right there on top. Right. And so, so that's it. That's monosodium glutamate. And so the difference between glutamic acid, which is a, an amino acid that our bodies produce, we're able to synthesize it by breaking down proteins. Mm-hmm. It's actually um, a, a glutamic acid and any kind of mineral ion bonded together is a glutamate. So if it's bonded, if glutamic acid is bonded with an ion of sodium, it's monosodium glutamate. If it's bonded with an ion of potassium, it's potassium glutamate. Um, So there's like different minerals that it can bond to, but the one we're talking about is monosodium glutamate. And glutamate is extremely important to our bodies. I saw somewhere that four pounds of us, a little little under two kilograms, of any human being walking around is glutamate. That's how that's how much of it we have in our bodies at any given point in time. Yeah, and it, it actually serves functions too. Uh, glutamic acid is a neurotransmitter. Right. And it's an excitatory neur- neurotransmitter, which that means it stimulates nerve cells to relay the signal. And we'll get to the is it good or bad thing, but some people, one of the claims, and sort of where some of that is rooted, aside from just propaganda, is that MSG in foods can lead to excessive glutamate in the brain mm-hmm. and then excessive stimulation of nerve cells. And for that reason, it's what's called an excitotoxin. Right, like it excites neurons so much that it actually destroys or damages them. So you destroy enough neurons, then you destroy your cognitive function. That's right. And we'll, we'll hold the rest of that to the, uh, for further myth-busting. Yeah. Myth-busting. <laughs> <laughs> I like the extra mustard you put on it. So as far as how much we're consuming, this is what the FDA says. And this is a quote. 
An average adult consumes approximately 13 grams of glutamate each day from mm-hmm. the protein in food. And this is just like regular foods. Right. While intake of added MSG is estimated to be around 0.55 grams per day. Right. So average daily intake is about a half a gram a day. Right. And, and so um, you, you can find it, again, everywhere in the body. You also find it in um, breast milk. Sure. Um, And glutamates are just everywhere. And so even if you wanted to get away from MSG, you're not really getting away from glutamates. And it would be, you'd be ill-advised to get away from glutamates to begin with, right? Right. The thing is, and this is where a lot of people say, well, really, MSG is fine. There's no problems with it. A lot of people say that. It's kind of considered a settled science by some, as we'll see. Um, That the body does not distinguish between manufactured MSG and the MSG or other kinds of glutamates that it gets from foods in which this naturally occurs, right? That's right. When your body takes it in, takes in MSG, it goes, okay, let's separate the sodium ion and send it over here for this use, and we'll break the glutamate down over here, and we'll use it for this, for neurotransmitting and to build proteins. It doesn't make any any distinction, metabolically speaking, between MSG that's manufactured, and MSG that you find in, like, tomatoes. Right. I think part of the problem started in the 60s with the way it was synthesized. Yeah. Uh, Anytime something is synthesized through a chemical process that has, you know, toxins and toxic byproducts, I think people are going to freak out even if the end result is not toxic. Yeah, and it's pretty understandable, too, because, I mean, some of the stuff we're talking about is very nasty, and you think about it, you're like, wait, that's where MSG comes from, and I'm eating it on my food? Right. I can I can commiserate with that big time, even though uh, a large part of my brain is like, that's just kind of a fear of science and chemistry. Right. But it, it's understandable. I mean, like, in the for the first half of the 20th century, there was a process um, to produce MSG that included propylene and acrylonitrile, which you don't want to eat that. And you don't eat it. It's just these were used to as precursors to create MSG. That's, that's how. Right. That's the process for a while. But you can understand how it would get a bad rep just from that alone. Yeah, but now it's produced by fermentation. Mm-hmm. Basically, they take uh, certain kinds of bacteria and yeast, uh, and they grow that in a broth. They basically use starches, uh, various sugars, carbohydrates, and then the bacteria ferments that sugar. Yeah. And they produce the glutamate. Then they combine it with the sodium, and it becomes, it looks sort of like salt. It's a white crystalline substance. It doesn't really have much of an odor. Mm-hmm. And you could just sprinkle it on top of your chocolate ice cream if you wanted. You could. I think it actually does in certain amounts bring out sweet. I don't think it does anything to sour or bitter, but it can enhance sweetness and enhance saltiness. It does have its own flavor, which we'll see, uh, but it's also known as a flavor enhancer, too. Right, like that accent. Right, exactly. Accent. Why aren't they sponsoring this episode? I don't know. They really should. <laughs> Either that or they're like, leave us out of this. We don't <laughs> want to get this kind of rap. They're like, we, like, we were under the radar for... A large portion of the 20th century. <laughs> right, exactly. Until you guys came along. Should we take a break? Oh, wait, hold on. I have a little more on fermentation. All right, of course. This is very surprising. But the fermentation, the wastewater, what's left over after you get the MSG out of this, like, sugar beet juice that the bacteria and yeast have fermented, 
I read a study from um, the Chinese National Academy of Science, I believe, Chinese okay. Academy of Science. They called um, MSG wastewater one of the most intractable forms of wastewater we we produce. Yeah. Yeah, because all of that yeast and some of the ammonium that's produced as a byproduct of it, it um, consumes a lot of oxygen, so it kills off other stuff in, like, water. So you can't yeah. just dump this wastewater into other water because it'll create, like, a dead zone wherever it hits. That doesn't so bode well for people that, you know, are scared of it. No, it doesn't. There's a lot of stuff about MSG where if you look at it, you're like, yeah, I really understand. It's really coincidental that this is actually harmless, but there's all this, like— circumstantial peripheral stuff that seems the, to the support. Waste, the wastewater will scorch, scorch the earth. Basically, yeah. But enjoy your enjoy your accent, chump. Poor accent. I know. All right. Now I'm okay with taking a, a break. All right. Uh, we'll come back and talk a little bit, a little bit of a refresher perhaps on umami right after this. <laughs> So, Chuck, we did an entire episode on umami. Do you remember that? That was a good one. It was. We also talked about it in our episode on taste and how yeah. it works. Sure. But we should kind of go over the, the broad strokes of it again, I think. Yeah. I mean, up until uh, the early 1900s, humans were sort of since 400 BCE when bitter was added mm -hmm. by a philosopher of all people named Democritus Is there or Democritus. Anything those philosophers couldn't do? <laughs> I don't think so. It's a pretty broad uh, <laughs> yeah. title back then. For real. But uh, sweet, salty, sour, and bitter. And yeah. we were locked into that, and everyone was pretty happy with that. Like, why mess with it? You know? I, I don't know. They're still messing with it today. There's, oh, sure. I've seen like six, seven other candidates for a sixth taste. I'm sure that will be happening at some point in the near future, don't you think? I, yeah, and I think we settled last time on carbon dioxide is going to be the sixth taste. <laughs> really? Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. We, That's sad. We, no, it's a good it's a good one. It does some, <laughs> some magic to your tongue. I guess it does, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll see. Uh, so the, here, here's a gentleman that comes along in 1909, and his name is uh, Kakune Akita. Is that right? Uh, not bad. What did I get wrong? Uh, there's like an extra little half syllable in there. Kikunaya. Like, oh, okay. Well, I should Ki just leave the Japanese pronunciations to you. I think you basically knew. I should have just kept my mouth shut because it was so close. That I've got Europe locked down. Here you go. <laughs> How selfish can I be? Right, exactly. <laughs> do do Kikunaya Akeda in an Italian accent. <laughs> I don't think I can. <laughs> yes, you can. My brain just broke. Uh, so he was a professor of chemistry at Tokyo Imperial University, and he was eating some dashi, mm -hmm. uh, which is made from seaweed, a, a kelp called kombu. Mm -hmm. And he was like, man, uh, this tastes meaty, but there's no meat in it, and it's super rich, and there's something going on in here right. that, I don't, uh, that I can't quite pinpoint, and I think I might be on to something. He said, where's the beef? <laughs> he might have. <laughs> he totally did. 
So this is not like the first time anyone ever realized like, yeah, there's a, there's something, there's such a thing as a meaty taste or whatever. But because we have been so locked into those, the idea that there's only four tastes. I mean, I remember going to elementary school and being taught that too. Sure. In the, in the 80s, basically, just lied to over and over again. Yeah. No one, no one said umami to me until like seven years ago. Basically, yeah. Um, but uh, Ikeda had figured this out way back in 1908. He said, no, this is not just some flavor. This is a taste sensation that is not one of the other four. It's its own thing. And even more than that, I've been doing some pretty neat experiments on uh, kombu and dashi, and I've actually isolated what's giving this thing its meaty taste. And by the way, I'm going to call meaty taste umami, mm-hmm. which means delicious or yummy. Yeah. Um, and it's called monosodium glutamate. That's right. Uh, and this was not, uh, we knew about glutamic, glutamic acid. <laughs> which way do you say? Do you prefer glutamic? I mean, my, my mouth wants to say glutamic, mm-hmm. but my heart wants to say glutamic. <laughs> I got <gotcha>. you. <laughs> so I'm torn between two lovers. You are. Just call it G-acid. Yeah, G-acid. We knew about this stuff already. Uh, There was a German chemist named Karl Heinrich Ritthausen. Beautiful. And he discovered this in 1866. So that brings us to another myth we can bust here is that uh, gluten, like because it's monosodium glutamate, people Mm -hmm. that have gluten intolerance think that it's made with wheat gluten and that they can't eat it. And that's that's not true at all. No, did you had you heard that before? I've heard I think anything with the the letters G L U mm-hmm. in any food, I think people that are, have gluten sensitivity are wary of. Right. Well, the, what's interesting about this, I hadn't heard that, but this makes total sense. The reason that it's even called glutamic acid is because um Rittenhausen used wheat gluten to uh he hydrolyzed it basically broke it down like the acids in your stomach break down food. Right. To isolate um, the uh, glutamic acid. Since he used wheat gluten, he just kind of named the acid after what he used the um, as the the precursor, which was wheat gluten. But it has no gluten in it. Has nothing to do with gluten. You can get um, MSG any number of ways that don't involve wheat. Did I ever tell you about the restaurant in Paris, the gluten free place Emily and I went to? No. <laughs> you know what the name of it was? What? No glue. Nice. I'm serious. <laughs> That's pretty great. That's great. Yeah, right in the middle of Paris. And it was actually really good. I had a very, very delicious hamburger there. I can imagine, man. French cooking is mwah. Yeah, even without gluten. And speaking of French cooking, there is a guy who was using savory. That's what people in the West called it. Even after Ikeda came along and said, no, no, it's, this is umami. It's its own thing. The Western chefs were well aware of this idea of savory. They just hadn't said this is a fifth taste that humans are capable of tasting. Um, And Auguste Escoffier, who I had heard the name of before, but I didn't realize, um, he's the guy who basically founded French classical cuisine as we understand it today. Oh, really? Yeah, it was this guy. He invented the sauce? No, no, he invented, like, French cooking. That was a joke. French cooking is all about the sauces. It is about the sauce. So, yes, I'm sure he had a lot to do with the sauce. But I was reading an an article on him uh, in Britannica, and it was written by Nathan Mervold, who was the first CTO of Microsoft. But it was about this French cook from the uh, the 19th century. Yeah, he was was big into animal stocks, Mm -hmm. and he used veal stock. 
and kitten stock. <laughs> right. And puppy stock. Sure. Puppy and all stock sorts of baby delicious. animal stocks. Right. <laughs> Uh, and he knew about it. You know, he was, we just didn't call it umami until it was so named. No, and also one other thing about Escoffier, he also used something called Magi sauce, which had been invented several years before by Julius Magi, who was a Swiss miller, um, who came up with the sauce. And Escoffier was like, this is the bomb, I think was the quote that he said. <laughs> um, so people were, were aware of savory so much so that they were creating sauces that really isolated the umami flavor. It just, again, was Ikeda who came along and said, let's apply some science here. I give you, ladies and gentlemen, the fifth taste. That's right. Uh, it, and it does taste, um, you know, it, it, there's a, a writer named Carla Lali Musique. Nice. It's music, but I bet she pronounces it music. I would if my last name was music. And she writes sometimes for Bon Appetit, and um, she said it's sort of like salt mixed with dehydrated meat juice, and sure. it adds a lot to food. It can you don't want too much of it. Um, you you can sprinkle it on your food, but you don't really want like you can buy pure MSG, but it's not the kind of thing that people generally do. Mm-hmm. Like at home, is buy a big tub of MSG, right, and like sprinkle it on stuff. It's usually mixed with other spices, like yeah, accent. You, yeah, accent. Um, yeah, it can be mixed with other seasonings, salt. It gets mixed with mo- most often. Um, and the reason that you want to pre-mix it is because, one, I mean, it's just easier to use. But there's certain proportions you want to use. It doesn't take much MSG no. to bring out the flavor in salt or for MSG to kind of even stand on its own and lend that umami flavor to whatever you're doing. So you don't want to use too much. So you'd have to be pretty proficient in, you know, using MSG to just use straight-up MSG. Right. Which is why it's usually pre-mixed to begin with. Yeah, so Ikeda, for his, uh, you know, he was a smart guy. So he wasn't just satisfied with discovering this and sort of sitting back and said, one day on Wikipedia, I will be featured. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm going to make some money off of this. He got a business partner named, well, you should say all Japanese names. (laughs) Okay. Saburo Suzuki Jr. Yeah, so you you do it with the right flair. I've just been, I've been exposed to it so much. I kind of, yeah. I like it. I I sound like an American and you sound like you're trying to fit in. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So this guy was already a part of the chemical industry. And so it was a pretty natural relationship. They founded a company called? Ajinomoto. The Essence of Taste. And their mascot was and is? Well, that's just, okay, the Aji Panda. I could have said that. But you I'm, could have said that. <laughs> but they are still around today. And oh, a yeah. couple of years ago, they, they had about $10 billion worth of sales of MSG. They're the largest producer, and they are literally pumping this stuff out on a year-to-year basis. Yeah, funny enough, um, I don't have a bottle of Accent in my pantry, but I do have a bottle so. of Ajinomoto. Oh, yeah? Yeah, some listeners going to write and be like, why do you hate America? <laughs> <laughs> I bet Accent even, is not even made in America. I wonder. Sometimes they do kind of slip it by, like it's just been around for so long, everybody thinks like, well, that's, of course it's America. Yeah, who knows? Like they chant USA when they grab the bottle and sprinkle it on their food. So we should talk a little bit about the science of whether or not MSG, you know, is it all in people's head? Is it real? <sighs> I'm really glad you asked that, Chuck. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the deal. The FDA says... I remember, uh, did we do one on the FDA? 
Yes. Does okay. the FDA protect Americans? That's right, because that's where we, uh, I remember this phrase, generally recognized as safe, mm-hmm. gross. I think that also came up in our dietary supplements episode, too. Yeah, it's it's funny <laughs> that a phrase meaning something is safe does not make one feel any better. Right, generally. The, yeah, generally recognized as safe does not mean 100% safe. And it doesn't mean 100% safe because even though it's fairly settled science, they can't say like absolutely no way in any case is MSG ever harmful at all to anyone in any amount. Yeah, but I mean, you can say that about basically anything. And I hate, I'm not trying to create a straw man argument. No, I'm with you. You can say that about water. There was a woman who drank too much water and died of water toxicity. Um, You can die from too much salt. And remember, it doesn't take much MSG as compared to salt um, to be added to food um, to to really, you know, bring out the flavor or whatever. So there's there's like a lot of – you can basically – there's nothing you could say this is never going to harm you no matter how much you eat. And I think that's kind of why they're saying generally recognized as safe. I think the other aspect of it, though, is that a lot of people do want to say, no, this is just, it's settled. I've seen that all over the place while we were researching. This is settled science. I read about a woman who wrote a book um, exploring whether or not, you know, some food additives were safe. And she didn't even bother to include MSG oh, wow. in the book because she she considered it so so settled. But there is definitely a contingency of people out there, including not just like worried parents or Facebook dwellers, like actual scientists in in like the industry of of food sciences who are saying, no, actually there there may be a small group of people out there who experience these symptoms um, that we we now call um, MSG symptom complex, but what used to be called Chinese restaurant syndrome. But that Overall, like, it's not going to developmentally harm your kid or um, it's not going to um, blow your brain up because it's an excitotoxin or anything like that. Yeah, so here's the deal on the science. It's, it is true that increased glutamate activity can cause harm and that large doses of MSG can raise the blood levels of glutamate, mm-hmm. but dietary glutamate, like... And we'll talk about some of the experiments here in a second. But dietary glutamate is not going to have any effect on your brain because it can't cross the blood-brain barrier uh, in large amounts. So they is did that a, true? Huh? That's right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. So here's the deal. If people experience like headache, muscle tightness, numbness, uh, tingling, weakness, flushing, these are mm-hmm. all reported like symptoms of that syndrome. Um we're talking about dietary glutamate. Like they they say the threshold that could cause those symptoms is about three grams in a single meal. Mm -hmm. But if you remember, we said 0.5 grams is a daily average intake. Right. So in a single meal, consuming six times the average daily intake of MSG could lead to something like that. And they're Mm -hmm. not exactly sure why, but some researchers, they, you know, they have speculated that really large doses like that, like overdosing on MSG, right. you may get little trace amounts crossing the blood-brain barrier. Gotcha. That makes sense. And that three grams in a single meal is straight-up MSG fed to people in an experiment who were on an empty stomach. So, like, there's basically no situation where you're going to accidentally poison yourself with MSG so that you would actually get that MSG symptom complex. 
Right. And in the early 70s, when this stuff started really becoming like, you know, the devil spice, they were literally injecting baby monkeys and mice with straight MSG. And humans. And humans. And they didn't like it very much. No. Because they were injecting large amounts of MSG into infant animals. Right. So I read that there are pharmacological effects from injecting MSG. Like, that's sure. basically not not up for debate. And I was like, well, sure, if you inject sugar or even if you inject salt or something like that, you're, you'd be, you know, same problems. Actually, it's not necessarily true. Um, you get kind of saline drips. You get um, glucose drips. They're, like, people do inject salt and sugar and can tolerate it. So, in injected form, MSG is not good for you. But no one injects MSG. And the fact that we metabolize MSG by eating it and that that's how we actually intake MSG in small amounts through food, which our guts then metabolize and turn into glutamate and sodium, that it should not be harmful for you. That's, the, that's what the science has found. That's right. And in addition to these studies that injected baby mice, which mm -hmm. is sort of ridiculous. Yeah. Um, these weren't even great studies anyway. They were not double-blind. Um, Ed found research that says, you know, they were just basically lacking in design altogether. Right. So they, they weren't good studies, and they were wacky in how they uh, – the methodology, I think. Well, yeah, which is kind of – I don't know. I guess it's surprising. I, I Maybe just – Scientists who weren't so great were the ones who tended to be interested in it, or where they were rushing it out to market. I'm not sure. Or maybe but food science was just a little early. Maybe so, but they, 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 from the findings they, the of these early studies, and then replicated studies of the early studies that found MSG to be harmful, basically said, no, this is not, this is not harmful. Yeah, probably if you inject it, it's not good, but don't inject it. Is, is basically what science said. <laughs> and then um, there, was, there were further follow-up studies, you know, in the decades that followed that said, okay, well, wait a minute. What about all these people who are self-reporting MSG allergies who are saying they're getting this complex of system or symptoms from eating at, like, Chinese restaurants or something? Um, and so there was investigation of that. And what they found from those studies is that they basically – couldn't get it beyond the placebo effect. Right. That there were, you were just as likely, if not in some cases, more likely to report the, the MSG symptoms complex from a placebo than you were if you were given actual MSG, a pill with MSG or something in it. So combined, all these studies combined have basically led the FDA to say because the, the um, symptoms can't be consistently or reliably replicated and that there's all these double-blind placebo tests that have been done that show placebo can bring it out too, we tend to think that it's actually basically in, in almost everyone's heads. That's right. Should we take another break? Sure. All right, we'll take one final break, and we're going to uh, come back and talk about a few reasons why the MSG scare was born right after this. <laughs> So, Chuck, um, 
just despite the fact that like there's all the science out there that some people are like this is settled science like that is not a phrase that even really has any basis in reality but that's that's what they're kind of the point with people who say it's settled science they're saying like this is as close as science comes like stop being afraid of msg there's still plenty of people who don't eat MSG, who avoid it. Yeah. I saw that um, the International Food Information Council did a survey and found that 42% of Americans actively avoid MSG. Yeah. Like, they, they read labels, and if the thing says MSG uh, is contained in this, they, they won't eat it, which is more than people who avoid caffeine, genetically modified organisms, or gluten, which was really surprising to me. And when was that? Uh, that was, oh man, you're killing me. <laughs> it wasn't very long ago. How about that? Well, it's been since the, the gluten, uh, scare has happened. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I would guess so. So I would say within the last 10 years that gotcha. that poll was done. But so there are people who are like, I don't trust you. I don't trust the FDA. I don't like the word that says generally. Um, it scares me that sometimes MSG is used as a preservative and stabilizer in vaccines. I don't like those two being uh, associated with one another. Other people say, and I saw this, but I couldn't see it. I saw the same mention basically around the internet and I couldn't find any source material. So take this with a grain of salt as it were. But that MSG, um, the the fermentation of MSG produces arsenic and lead. Yeah, I saw that too. So people aren't real excited about that kind of thing. And then there's that whole other subsection of people who are like, it's a it's an excitotoxin. And if you eat too much of this, your brain's going to blow up. It's basically like a genuine flavor blast is what they're saying. Yeah. So there are, are a lot of people who are afraid of MSG. Um, but the question is, you know, is it because MSG really is harmful or is it because it's, you know, just a fear of science and a distrust of the people who are supposedly looking out for our well-being? Well, and a holdover from the 1970s and 80s. Right. When it was, uh, you know, it was all over the place as something terrible to the extent where restaurants and hotels and a lot of them still do have these signs that say, no MSG, mm-hmm. like it's safe to eat here. <laughs> right. There was a book uh, written by a man named Russell Blaylock called Excitotoxins, colon, The Taste That Kills. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there were rumors, if, you know, that, you know, uh, Chinese restaurants put it in their food because you get filled up faster and you won't eat as much off the buffet. Oh, yeah? Oh, you don't remember hearing that? No. Yeah, that was a big one. I, I've, Is it like I, fills you up and so, or makes yeah. you feel full? So, you know, you're gonna get away with 13 cents less uh, less food. Right. I've actually seen um, that there there is an idea that that um, MSG does affect you in that way. It makes you feel fuller. But from what I'm seeing, science is is bearing out the opposite. That they think that people who eat MSG tend to be heavier than people who don't use MSG. Yeah. Because it may suppress leptin, which is a hormone that tells us that we're full, so we stop eating. So the idea is the more MSG you eat, the the um, the less you're going to feel full, or you're just not going to feel full and you're going to keep eating more, which is a problem because from what I'm seeing, you know, the whole like anti-sodium thing that's kind of going on among health crusaders? Sure. Well, um, in very much the same way that corn syrup was allowed to replace fats in that whole fat-free trend. 
MSG is being added in increasing amounts to this low sodium or even salt-free stuff because it brings out the flavor in salt. So if you add more MSG, you can use less salt. And on the package, you can say lower sodium. Right. You don't say anything about the MSG, but you can sell this thing as lower sodium or whatever. So people who are worried about their heart or worried about their salt intake will buy that, not knowing that they're eating actually more MSG than they would be. And that may actually cause them to overeat if indeed MSG is linked to obesity. And the jury's still out on that one as well. Yes, very much inconclusive at this point. Yes. Uh, so a lot of this, this is where the story gets kind of interesting, I think, as far as the uh, hysteria around MSG. And there was, there was a letter written to the New England Journal of Medicine in 1968 mm-hmm. from Dr. Ho Man Kwok, uh, K-W-O-K. And he was a senior research investigator at a place called the National Biomedical Research Foundation. He immigrated from China, mm-hmm. and he said, you know what? After I eat at Chinese restaurants here in the United States, Chinese-American food, I feel malaise. I feel some of these symptoms that people always list out, mm-hmm. uh, these adverse reactions. Uh, and I think, I'm speculating here, that it's because they're using a lot of MSG over here. Right, which I think the implication was they don't really use MSG in China because they're better chefs. Like good, really right. good chefs kind of look down their nose at using MSG because it's a cheat. Um, you can bring MSG out, you can bring glutamates out in food through like patient um, slow and low cooking techniques, or you can just take a shortcut and put a little MSG on it, right. and you're going to get to basically the same place, right? That's right. So in one way, he, he, you almost have the idea that he was saying like, Chinese food in China is superior to Chinese food in America, but he was saying- Which I'm sure is true. Probably. But he was saying um, like- I actually feel physically unwell after I eat in Chinese restaurants in America. Yeah, exactly. Which is a big difference than Chinese food in China is better than Chinese food in America. Right. And this was not, you know, a letter to the editor. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Right. By a doctor. Yeah. So it was a big deal. Right. And um, here's what happened after that. Uh, This letter... Like, it was a sort of a domino effect. And even though he was a Chinese-American and he had probably the best of intentions, it gets picked up. And then all of a sudden, there are white people in America writing racist articles with, like, broken English headlines, mm-hmm. uh, very much like uh, making a caricature out of Chinese uh, people, Chinese food, Chinese immigrants, Chinese chefs. Mm-hmm. And it devolved into jokes. And, like, this is the era that we grew up in in the 70s and 80s where, like, we remember this stuff. Sure, in, in very short order. Dr. Kwok didn't coin this, but um, some of the letters, the follow-up letters in response that the New England Journal of Medicine started to print um, coined this term Chinese restaurant syndrome. That's right. Where basically if you ate at a Chinese restaurant in America um, because of the copious amounts of MSG that was used, you could feel weak, lightheaded, your, um, f- your neck and face could feel tight or flushed or both. You might feel woozy. Um, you might have heart palpitations, any number of things. Headaches, allergies might get set off, your asthma might get set off. Um, and all of these things combined came to be con- called Chinese restaurant syndrome. And here's the thing. 
you said it. Dr. Kwok's letter was a letter. It wasn't a study. He didn't say, hey, I've, here's a study. Let's peer review it. Right. It was a letter that got some response, pretty much tongue-in-cheek joking responses in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the non-medical media saw this and said, oh, let's start reporting on this, and started reporting on it as if it were scientific fact that MSG caused these symptoms and that you would get this from eating at Chinese restaurants. That's right. So none of it had to do with eating eight pounds of Chinese food at a buffet. Sure. (laughs) Sure. And even Dr. Kwok in his letter said maybe it's soy sauce, maybe it's cooking wine, maybe it's— Right. um, I can't remember. I think the copious amounts of sodium. And people even still today say, hey, maybe Chinese food does do something to you, but is it possible it's one of the spices or herbs or plants that's used extensively in Chinese cuisine? Who knows? Yeah. And, it, you know, it can be salty food, especially when you're dumping soy sauce on top of already salty food. Sure. But the point point is it's not clear at all that there is such a thing as Chinese restaurant syndrome, that there is any kind of response that anyone actually gets to this, or is it all just the power of suggestion? That's right. And the story gets a little weirder here as far as this letter goes. Mm -hmm. So they published a letter, New England Journal of Medicine, and apparently there's a history there of like joke letters like onion-style stuff, I guess. Sure. Uh, fake syndromes, silly letters. Christ and a lot returns of, to the NBA. <laughs> a lot of letters in response to this uh, Quack letter mm-hmm. had this um, sort of took this angle where they were doing that, and some of them suggested that it was a fake letter, and the name Ho Man Quack was a pun, human crock, and it was all just cooked up. Right. So that's the foundation. Then in 2018. Dr. Howard Steele uh, this guy. put a response to, I know, to an article about this controversy, and he called a reporter and said, you know what, I wrote that letter way back then. He said, I was trying to win a bet to see if I could get a fake letter in the New England Journal of Medicine. So that became the story for a while, that this one letter that had kicked off this potentially totally unfounded fear of MSG in Chinese food restaurants um, had was not only like baseless, but it had been written as a prank by a white doctor who made up a funny sounding Chinese name and um, that he had basically pranked everyone, everyone in America for the last several decades. Right. That's how it stood for a little while. But it turns out that even that wasn't correct. And we have our friends over at This American Life, our friends slash rivals over at This American <laughs> Life, um, to thank for exposing this Howard Steele dude because they dug in a little further. Yeah. Who are you going to turn to? The Podfather. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Glass, Dr. Ira Glass. The podfather. I thought that was Marin. <laughs> no, I always called uh, Ira Glass the podfather. Really? Yeah. I always thought you were referring to Marin every no. time. That makes a lot more sense. Marin's not the podfather. <laughs> Isn't Adam Curry the podfather? Well, I think technically, probably. Is that an urban legend? That he was the first podcaster? Yeah. I don't know. I think I'm, That's got to be true, right? I, I don't know. It sounds great. So, yes, of course it has to be true. I mean, Jesse Thorne was around before Marin. Sure. Well, we were around before Marin. Were we? Barely? Mm-hmm. Just barely. He'll never live it down. <laughs> so, in uh, th- this was this year, in 2019, as we record this, mm-hmm. this American Life poked around like they like to do. Mm-hmm. They found out that Dr. Steele, who was dead at this time, 
was uh, was kind of a real jerk because Dr. Kwok was a real person who is now also dead, and his children uh, are not too happy about all this. They confirmed, like, no, my dad was Dr. Kwok. That is his real name. Yeah, it's not he, a joke name. No, he wrote this letter. He did work. There is a really uh, a place called the National Biomedical Research Foundation because I guess Steele said that wasn't even a real thing, right? He said he made up the whole thing. All of it. Yes. And and this daughter was sort of exasperated and was like, no, that was my dad. He worked there. He wrote that letter. And this Dr. Steele sort of, uh, like, what's his, what's his problem? <laughs> Basically, his so his daughter explains on This American Life that um, her dad was the kind of guy who would just play a prank like this, and when he was finally found out, would just refuse to apologize because you should have had your head on straight better and, and shouldn't have fallen oh, yeah, for it. Yeah. He was that kind of guy. Um, and on the one hand, I mean, he was an important physician. He apparently invented some um, some orthopedic surgical techniques that are still used today. Um, but he was also... Uh, kind of a jerk from <laughs> from what I can tell. He's the That's kind of guy that pulls out him. the chair from under you and you fall on the floor and he's like, what, you don't reach back to see if your chair's there? Basically, that's kind of <laughs> how his daughter portrayed him in a certain way, lovingly, because it's her dad. Sure. But you should, you know, did you hear that, that segment huh? on that oh, episode? Yeah. So, yeah, it's real cringe-inducing to hear um, Lily Sullivan on This American Life break the news to Dr. Steele's daughter that, like, he didn't make up that letter, that he was lying about that all these years. Yeah. She's like, oh, God. Oh, Dad. What has he done now? <laughs> so the uptake of, or the upshot of all of this is that there was, like, Steele really confounds everything. But if you take Steele out of the equation, what you're left with is a Chinese-American um, doctor, I think a pediatrician, who wrote a letter back in 1968 from what I can tell very earnestly and with good intentions saying, hey, don't you think this is weird? What is this kind of thing? Um, here's here's what happens to me when I eat Chinese food in America. Here's what I think it is that just set off this uncritical and um, kind of pretty racist uh, examination of it that, that the whole country just kind of took on as fact for decades. That's right. And your beloved accent, Chuck? Yeah. How does that play into this? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't use it. You, well, no, but it had been around for a good 20 years before um, Dr. Kwok's letter was published, right? Oh, sure. Well, Americans have been using that stuff for ages. Right. And no one had ever complained of any uh, symptoms from MSG. It wasn't until that one single letter. That's right. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. What an odd story. You got anything else? No. Okay. Well, if you want to know more about MSG, go try Magi. Or kombu, or what was it? Oysters? Sure. Tomatoes, cheese, accent. Go try all that stuff. You're going to love it. Uh, And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Well, you got a listener mail follow-up, don't you? I do. I have two things, Chuck. First, I want to give a little uh, heads up to everybody. My Chicago End of the World show is coming up on September 12th. And there's tickets still available. I'll be at Lincoln Hall. And you can get tickets at lh-st.com. Uh, don't be a jerk and spell out dash. It's just the dash symbol. <laughs> uh, and then, yes, I have an update for a listener mail. Do you remember the listener mail uh, author, Kate, who wrote in f- at the end of the nuclear semiotics episode? 
Uh, sure. She had said that she had undergone like a big a breakup and drove yeah, from yeah. Phoenix to Charlotte and listened to us the whole time. Well, uh, when we read that, almost immediately, we got an email from another listener named Jeremy, who lives in Charlotte, who said, sorry to hear about your breakup, but welcome to Charlotte from another SYSK listener. Are they in love? It's a great, I don't know about that. It's a great city, and I hope you have a new start, a great new start here. Which I just thought was so nice. Sure. That I found Kate's original email and got in touch with her and just just forwarded just that part. Copied and pasted it and mm-hmm. forward Jeremy's whole email because, you know. You're I not playing matchmaker. Boundaries. You're just being friendly. No, and I'm glad I'm not trying to pay, play matchmaker because in response, I get an update from Kate. And she says, thank you. I'm doing so well now. I made a new group of friends, I have my own apartment, a new teaching job, and I'm even dating someone new. It ended up being the best decision I've ever made. She said, thank you for sharing my listener mail, you guys rock, and then the metal finger hand emoji. (laughs) Is she dating the guy? I don't think so. That would oh, have okay. been really fast. That's a because, MacGuffin then. <laughs> right. But, but um, yeah, well, you're the one who introduced it. I never said that. I, the guy was just being nice. I think it clearly was headed toward a, a romantic ending, no? Oh, oh, sorry. I didn't realize. I've seen said too that many out. movies, I guess. I think you have too. <laughs> you're like, come on, you got mail. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad everyone's happy. Uh, it doesn't have to end like a Meg Ryan movie. Uh, no, it doesn't. But it sounds like it came pretty close, actually. All right. I love it. Uh, so way to go, Kate, in making a bold decision that paid off. So now, listener mail. Uh-huh. Or should we? Or does that count? Should we just end? Um, I don't know, man. It's up to you. How good's the listener mail you yeah, have? Yeah, it's pretty good. Let's go ahead and read it. Okay. Uh, this is from Veronica. Uh, she's, she said, hey, guys, beyond the content of your show that I love, uh, I hold a special place in my heart for the community your show has fostered mm-hmm. that I experienced at your Chicago show this summer, which was nice. just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, I attended that show during, a, uh, and by the way, she started listening to this uh, show when she was in the sixth grade. No. And now she's like a working adult. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yes, it's it's the best. Uh, I attended the show in a very particularly uh, difficult week. My childhood dog of 17 years had passed away that day. No. I had just moved across the country uh, for a job with a lot of new responsibilities and challenges, and I was trying to establish some new routines in a big city where I knew no one. I was sitting in the third to last row of that theater with anxiety heavy in my heart, and then seeing both of you guys for the first time and hearing your voices made me feel like everything was going to be okay. No. Uh, it's hard to put into words how tangible the happiness in that theater was. And people, if you don't go to these live shows, there's tangible happiness. There, there is. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we have not paid this listener to say this or give this testimonial. Yeah, come for stuff you should know. Stay for the tangible happiness. <laughs> right. You can squish it through your fingers like <laughs> jelly. She said, I've never been to any sort of event with such a joyful crowd. This is amazing. And she capitalized joyful. Uh, at the end of the show, Chuck talked about his late dog, Buckley. I uh, remember the last question of the night was this cute little girl who mm-hmm. said, which dog who was dead do you miss the most? She said it nicer than that. Mm-hmm. But I said, Buckley. And she said, that brought me to tears in the theater, not only because oh. this was the same name as my own dearly departed dog. What? Who died that day. This has just descended into like joyful <laughs> chaos. I know, right? I can barely hang on. Man, she said, also, uh, it felt like such a weird coincidence of this universe, and I couldn't explain it. 
Uh, having recently graduated college, I'm starting my first job as a teacher in the fall, and I, I attribute a large part of my desire to go into education to you guys. Uh, thanks for instilling me a love of learning, pursuing intellectual curiosities, and sharing those curiosities and joys along the way with others. And she shouts out some friends, Caroline VZ in Philadelphia, Joanne L in Ava Maria, Florida. Uh, they are two fellow Stuff You Should Know enthusiasts. And her name is Veronica, newly transplanted to Chicago from nice. California. Well, welcome to Chicago, Veronica. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about Buckley, but yeah. I'm glad that you could uh, help grieve that loss with, you know, 1,400 friends. Joyful friends. That's right. Uh, man, that was amazing. Thanks a lot for that letter, Veronica. That was great. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Veronica did or Kate or Jeremy, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our social links, or you can send us a good old-fashioned email. Wrap it up, spank that puppy on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.